0: Hey guys, I'm so glad you're here. You're listening to the Efficiency Bee Podcast, where we focus our time, money, and energy on all the right things to enjoy our bold, balanced, and blessed lives. I'm your host, Melissa Leone. I'm on a mission to redefine feminism, and dare I say, end it. You've heard of a busy bee, a honeybee, a queen bee, this is Efficiency B. Hey guys, how's it going today? I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for listening. I'm really excited to introduce my next guest to you. Megan Schantz is a writer, speaker, and former missionary who is passionate about empowering women and reclaiming feminism for the Christian faith. She's a prolific blogger, host of the Faith and Feminism podcast, and an avid traveler. She and her husband, Dustin, live in Northeast Georgia. Hi, Megan. Hi. How are you today?
1: I'm doing pretty well. How are you?
0: I'm pretty good. You know, it's early here in Phoenix, and my kids are out the door on their way to school, so I have a a little bit of time here before I have to get my day going. Mm, That sounds good. Well, I guess it's not too early for you, right? You're in Georgia, so that's good.
1: (laughs) Megan, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is Megan, um, as you've already said, and I am a former missionary, like you said, who worked with um, sexually exploited and oppressed women and discovered that the root of their oppression was based on inequality and realized that my ascending church, so I grew up in the conservative evangelical church was complicit in their oppression and the way that they taught um, about gender roles. And Mm -hmm. so I quit my job and started a podcast called Faith and Feminism and wrote a book about it. And that book actually comes out May 11th. So very soon. Awesome. Congratulations.
0: Thank you. I just recently uh, found a publisher. And so I know how I haven't even gotten to the part where I'm even close to a a, a date. So (laughs) it's a long road for sure. How long have you been working on it?
1: Um, a while, at least. Um, I think I've been in the actual publishing process for about a year and a half, like I signed a year and a half ago. And then before that, you know, I had maybe like a year and a half where I tried to find a publisher and, you know, write the first draft of my book. So it is.
0: A long, long, long process. I didn't realize that when I decided I wanted to write a book. How long (laughs) it takes, but um, the podcast was kind of like one of my sprints, so that I could feel like I was starting to talk about the message that I want to live with the book. So yeah, um, it's it's a nice outlet for sure. The the podcasting Mm -hmm. world. So as you know, I'm new to it, but I listen to your podcast, and it's always very very fun to listen to there's some really deep conversations that take place there uh, mm-hmm. and it's it's hard and challenging right right talk about some of these things the I, I'm going through this like whole journey right now between you know feminism and with all that's going on in the world with race and well in the United States it's probably not as deep as it is in other parts of the world but but I'd love for you to share a little bit about your message? What is what is the takeaway that you're hoping most people to get from your book?
1: Yeah. So I think what I want to do is illustrate um, the idea of systems. I mm-hmm. think a lot of us were raised with an individualist mindset. And so, for example, when we heard about something bad, perhaps um, a story of sexual assault or sexual abuse in the church, we always thought, oh, that's just that one guy's individual sin, he he screwed up. Um, but what I want people to see is that there's a systems and teachings and theology that all contribute to this idea um, that actually cause violence towards women. And so I grew up in a context where I was told to be submissive and silent and quiet and, and to basically defer to the men in my life. And um, it's sat wrong with me, but I didn't have I guess the the exposure to any other teachings. And so I went along with it until I, I heard the same story again and again while on the field with um, women who had been you know, survivors of female genital mutilation or rape or who had endured domestic violence. And what I heard again and again is these gender roles of, of, of patriarchy, essentially that men are supposed to be in charge and women are supposed to be submissive. And it was actually um, when I was working in the Philippines, I was working with a, a woman um, Well, I was partnering with a ministry that would take uh, or give women who – were sex trafficked or in the sex trade, the opportunity to get to college and and um, have that all paid for so they had more options uh, and could pursue, you know, things that they were passionate about. And while I was there, there was a man who um, wanted to talk to us and was talking about the reason that he came to the Philippines to buy these um, sex trafficked women was because um, they you know, we're he in his words, were raised right and raised to respect men the way they um deserved to be oh respected. Gosh. And this was actually a common refrain I had like experienced from men that I had talked to. Not not so clearly stated, but the same kind of idea like I deserve respect. I'm entitled to respect. And because I'm not getting that Or feeling like I'm getting that in the United States or wherever I'm going to go buy that respect that I feel that I deserve. Um, And so that was the moment for me that I realized, oh my goodness, like this is just like the teachings I had grown up with in the church about this idea of just respect men, they deserve respect. In fact, if you look at prominent evangelical authors who who write about marriage. Um, that, you know, for example, the book Love and Respect by Emerson Ekerich, um, that whole book is about respecting men and giving, and it even says to give respect to men regardless of their behavior. And so um, what that really, like, it just really came full circle to me to realize that the systems that I... Um, was part of and complicit in, whereas driving the same kind of, you know, ideology that was sending men to buy trafficked women. Mm-hmm. And I realized my complicity and I realized the church's complicity and quit my job. And like I said, tried to fight for women's rights within the church and fight for feminism within the church and found that, um, That really upset a lot of people, um, unfortunately, but I think it's all the more reason that we do have these conversations because, uh, you know, just even just what happened with the the shooting in Atlanta, this, Mm -hmm. this young Baptist man who was raised with these, these ideologies and purity culture, which is another facet of these gender roles, the kind of idea that women must cover up and are responsible for the actions of men. Um, And and he literally murdered people because he wanted to remove the temptation without, you know, that, that that was so much of what I grew up with. I cover up. So men aren't tempted. And so for me, I I think we're seeing the story again and again of the bad – um, bad fruit that is coming from these kind of teachings um and violence and and that is what i experienced around the world is these patriarchal gender norms are are contributing to quite a bit of violence towards women and it's not helpful towards men either because uh you know these these gender scripts that men have to be tough and in charge and can't experience emotion um, and if they do experience emotion it has to be anger um, and they need to be and you know in control and dominant all the time this is leading them i think to more violence because they don't have healthy ways to process their emotions and and grief and rage and so um, I think there's I think there's definitely a tie and I think that's why we're seeing that most of the violence in the world is perpetuated by men and I don't say that as a as a man hater this is just statistically what's happening and I think it has a lot to do with the gender roles uh, that we have. That's- that's so
0: interesting. I'm I'm so sheltered from a lot of the religious um mm-hmm. pressure, I think. I mean, I was raised in a Christian household, but um, you know, in a Presbyterian church. Mm-hmm. There was it was pretty maybe I just didn't absorb it, I don't know. I I never felt the you know, gender roles um, put in Mm -hmm. front of me. But I was also raised by a mother who was a police officer in the 70s. She was the first female police officer in Tucson, Arizona. And so I don't know if maybe that was part of it that I I just never picked up on submit um, Mm. to men ever.
1: I think, I mean, there's def- obviously different denominations of the church. And so I mm-hmm. don't know what part of Presbyterian church you are, but I actually remember going to a Presbyterian church in college where they did have women preaching and teaching and leading. Um, but that was not my context growing up. I went to a non-denominational yeah. church. So it could be that both of us experienced their Presbyterian church. There's different um, denominations of that, that could have been more egalitarian. So when I'm having these statements, I'm of course, there's there's strains um, of I think e- what is called egalitarianism, which mm-hmm. is the idea that men and women are equal and and can function in whatever role they choose. Um, that is present in some churches, but by and large, it, it's it wasn't present in my upbringing, and it wasn't really that present in um, a lot of the churches that I went to growing up, um, aside maybe from that Presbyterian church that I yeah. went to. Um, I, mean, I
0: live in an area with a lot of uh, Mormon influence, and I know for mm-hmm. sure that that is a, a big part of the Mormon religion is women yeah. stay home and, and take, and mm-hmm. you know, it's funny when you look at the, it's not funny, it's interesting, I think, mm-hmm. when you look at the history of it, most of it was likely started with good intention, and it just mm-hmm. got out of control, and, and then it, you wonder, like, how did it evolve to this level of oppression of women, right? I just, it, it blows my mind, honestly. Like, your story about the man in the Philippines, mm-hmm. just wow. Mm-hmm.
1: I, um, I, there's actually a really good book about this. It's called The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Mm -hmm. Allison Barr, which talks about these gender role theologies and how they kind of got cemented and rooted in the church. Um, but it actually started after the Reformation. So pre-Reformation, the idea was, you know, that you had to go to a priest to have a relationship with God. After the Reformation, um, it turned out, to be like kind of the men were the head of the household. And so they were like kind of the bridge to get to God. And so that's the historical influence. And of course, it's, you know, there's denominations and whatnot that that vary from that. But when we saw a move, a push for feminism um, around, you know, in the 70s, we had a, a strong response back from that feminism, uh, particularly in the church. So for example, um, the Equal Rights Amendment, I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was an amendment that was first introduced in nineteen twenty three by Alice Paul, and she uh you know it didn't like was trying to get it passed um and it, the amendment basically says. Not, not that I can remember it off the top of my head, but it's actually just a sentence saying that you can't have discrimination based on sex in the United States and that your rights should not be infringed based on sex. And um, that that really got a huge push in the 1970s and almost passed. In fact, um, the way it was it needed to be ratified was two-thirds of all states. And they had all the states they needed until a woman from the church, her name was Phyllis Schlafly, um, who said that women belonged in the home. And that this was unnecessary and would give women too much, I guess, power and um, really push back against it and was actually able to have several states be- with the movement she started uh, rescind uh, their their ratification and the Equal Rights Amendment didn't end up getting passed. Um, and so it's been, you know, 1970, so it's like 50, yeah, about 50 years later. Um, Virginia was actually, at, I think the 38th state, it was two thirds, it was the two third majority. Uh, Virginia passed it uh, this past year. Um, but we're still trying to get this passed because now it's like, well, It's been too long. There's arguments that it's been too long. Um, But a lot of people are still trying to get it passed because we are not protected uh, fully as women in our constitution, Um, which is, I think, shocking to a lot of people. And we do have like some clauses that specifically RBG did that was helpful, but it's actually not fully covering. And for issues like domestic violence, a lot of times. Because of our constitution, women really struggle to get justice in those areas, um, and so all of that to say, uh, the church um, has has sadly, or at least members of the church have sadly been part of preventing women from getting uh, the rights that they deserve. And mm-hmm. so um, it, it's it's not every church, but it is quite a few. And if if we're looking at, um, you know. I guess where the support is given the fact, like when I started talking about women's rights, I was kind of pushed to the margins of my faith community uh, because feminism was like a bad word. And Mm so um, anyways, all of that to say the church has been complicit in a lot of these things. And a lot of it is historical movements and counter movements. um, But I'm really hoping that we're in the movement again, right now where we do again, fight for the rights of women.
0: Oh, I completely agree. You'll you'll recall from the intro, I say I want to redefine and maybe end feminism. And it's, it's exactly to your point about feminism has become a bad word. And I think mm-hmm. feminists are often seen as man haters. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a man hater. I'm raising a man, right? I have a mm-hmm. six-year-old son. I have two daughters. And it, that phrase is really coming from I want men to be part of the conversation, Mm -hmm. not part of who we're battling. I want Mm -hmm. it to be together and, and coming up with, I mean, the feminist movement is absolutely what has enabled me to be who I am today. Mm -hmm. My, my book is about my, my grandmother um, in 1925, you know, watching her mom get the right to vote. My mother, being a ten-year-old in 1960s watching the civil rights act movement take place, um, me in the 1990s with, you know, Anita Hill and Monica Lewinsky sex stories and scandals that were coming up, and now my ten-year-old daughter who sees Kamala Harris in the in the as the vice president of the United States, and and the how each generation builds on the next, right, mm-hmm. and how we look at it today and say okay, we have a, a woman in, as a vice president. What is my, what is my granddaughter going to see when she's 10 years old? And what is that going to look like for my son's daughter and, or son? And, and how does the next step go? And I think the work that you're doing is so critical in that space because the religious, you know, when I, when mm-hmm. I got like my book stuff all written out and, you, you know, you do your avatar and you figure out who you're writing to and what are your mm-hmm. challenges – I have two challenges in my space and one is religion and one is mom guilt and like both of those are so powerful so powerful and um the religious element of it for me has never been a hindrance but I know for so many it you feel like you can't move right when when you're mm-hmm. told something your entire life it's part of your culture
1: right Right. And then, of course, women who kind of step out of that are are shamed and uh, told, you know, that they are, you know, in some cases, in extreme cases, that they're going to hell, which is what I what I have I've been told that. Um, So and or that they're like false teachers or they're they don't they're not good people. Um, So I think there's a lot of societal pressure. But like, thank goodness for the Internet. I think that's how I was exposed to other teachings. Goodness knows Mm -hmm. where I would be. If I had never, you know, been exposed to other teachings because, um, you know, you want to please the people around you, you want them to like you and think you're great, but at the same time, there's uh, sometimes you don't want to go along with things that is harmful to people. And that was my my experience was realizing that these systems were harmful yeah. and uh, and driving the oppression of women. And, and I couldn't be complicit any, in it anymore. Um, and, and of course, when you stand against a system, you do get a lot of pushback. And um, that's been the case for me. But I also know that this is important work. And so I'm going to keep going.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially when they tell you from a young child, as mm-hmm. a young child, your internal damnation is, it, right. <laughs> is at stake here, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's not small potatoes. You're, yeah. you're really embedding eternity into someone's brain and to fight back against that is so courageous. And I really admire you for that um, willingness to, to stand up for those who, who are in that today and, and not let go of your faith. Right. Still Mm -hmm. believe in your savior and still believe that there's good in the world and that the message has been. Distorted, but it's not Mm -hmm. wrong, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I still, I mean, I also think that Jesus was a feminist. And I think, I mean, we see the way he empowered women. In fact, one of my favorite stories is Mary and Martha, where, I mean, if we're looking at, you know, in Jesus' time, very, very, very strict patriarchal gender norms, women weren't really even allowed outside the house, and they certainly weren't allowed in the presence of men. And they certainly weren't allowed to like lead or learn um, or be taught in church. Um, and so the fact that you know we we go to the story of Mary and Martha where Jesus is um, visiting the house, him and his disciples, and Martha is preparing the house as she should, as according to her gender roles, and Mary instead decides to sit at the feet of Jesus with the other disciples. So I mean, this is super offensive because. Um, by doing so, she's showing that she wants to be a disciple, an apostle, that she wants to learn from the rabbi. She's breaking so many of her gender norms um, mm-hmm. and she's not helping with the house at all. And uh, so Martha was like, hey, Jesus, like Mary's not helping me. T- tell her to get in here. Like this is embarrassing. And, you know, Jesus responds by saying Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. And for me, that that one sentence, it just, I think, flips gender roles and gender norms mm-hmm. on their head. Like, he is literally praising Mary and saying what she has chosen better for breaking with these patriarchal gender norms. And so for me, I, I absolutely believe Jesus was a feminist, that he, you know, wasn't in line with these, you know, gender norms. In fact, we constantly see him, uh, you know, stand up to the Pharisees and tell them, hey, like, your, your religion, your rules are, are, you know, they're a hindrance. And uh, yeah, so I think Jesus was a feminist. So it's not my faith in Jesus or um, uh, God that has faltered. It's really my faith in the church um, because there's actually historical evidence that um, uh, Bible translators have, you know, written women out of the Bible. For example, there's an uh, apostle named Junia and they call they some translator changed her name to Junius, which is a male name to, to kind of like further the vision that women can't be apostles or disciples Mm -hmm. um so this is actually historical that um there's there's evidence that you know the 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 biblical text has been changed by certain translators not necessarily in every um translation there's a lot of translations out there but um the idea that like no i don't you know i'm gonna even change the bible to fit my um my idea that women can't lead or preach or are, are less than, than me. And so uh yeah, I I I don't have like I said, I don't have a, a lack of faith in God. I have a lack of faith in in the structures uh of, of church that have been used to oppress and subjugate women.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I completely agree. I I recently um was given a, a binder from my mom that had a bunch of pictures and um, information of my family, you know, going back to my great-grandfather, well, past my great-grandfather. He had a family tree going back to the 1740s, and he has a lot of writing in there, and he talks about the Puritan men, and so, of course, I immediately, like, Google it. What, is it, what does this mean? It's never really been in my in my frame of reference before, and one of the things that I learned is that they believed Satan would come and live in the weakest members of society being women and children and that the men were hardworking and that's what brought them closer to God. And, the you know, the harder that they worked, the closer they were to God. But the women who fought back or the children who fought back or didn't fall in line were, um, Satan was living in them or they were, they were listening to Satan and they had to be killed because Satan was, had already taken them over. And I just thought, Wow, you know, the women back then trying to stand up or the mm-hmm. children who hadn't um, been brainwashed enough quite yet, were being murdered because Satan was in them. It just mm-hmm. blows my mind that mm-hmm. that this was part of the the norm of the world back then, and it, it probably still today, and maybe i'm maybe I'm sheltered to it and I just never noticed. I don't know if it's the part of the country that you grow up in i mean i've I grew up on the west coast my whole life. Um, do you think it's different on different sides of the country?
1: I mean, I think it is, but I, I grew up in Colorado. So okay. um, yeah. I, I, I was still exposed to that teaching. But I do think it's more prominent, specifically in the South, when you're talking about the Southern Baptist Convention. So a lot of mm-hmm. uh, Southern Baptist churches, in fact, uh, it was in the early 90s, that they, you know, kind of wrote, rules and laws that women couldn't teach or preach or lead, um, even if they had been before. And also, they, like, wrote these kind of, like, family codes about wives having to submit to their husband. And so, I do think it's, like, um, I think it's probably more prevalent here in the South. I actually live in the South now. But yeah. I I I think it was everywhere. Um, yeah. I was definitely in Colorado where I grew up, so. Interesting. Do you –
0: have you – come across any evidence in your research um on the on the way it's it's different for people of color or women of color in particular
1: Um, well so i know obviously there's so if if we're talking about for example the southern baptist convention not only were they super patriarchal but they were super racist and so Mm -hmm. um in fact the reason the sbc kind of branched out they did the way they did it was um, around the time of slavery and it was so they could use the Bible to defend slavery. That's why that's kind of mm-hmm. where they got started. I interviewed um, a man about this. His name is uh, Robert P long and he wrote the book white too long. And he mm-hmm. talks about kind of the roots of uh, the Southern Baptist convention and how it's actually rooted in, in slavery and defending slavery. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised that they're also against women. Um, I, you know, I came from a white, um, context, a white evangelical church, so I don't know uh, what it would be like to grow up as, um, a woman of color, but I have, Mm -hmm. you know, I have talked, um, to different people and I think it also depends on the strands that you're in. And I think there are, so there are definitely places where these patriarchal teachings are present. In um, the black church, but I also think there's places where women are a lot more liberated. Um, and so again, I think it's probably due to the denomination. And of course, this is what I've heard from, from women of color, specifically black women, not necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, my own experience.
0: Yeah, I'm doing some research for my book right now on being a working mom, I've got three kids, I've got a big career, you know, I do all these other things on the side, and what got me to where I am today and one of the things that I recently uncovered was how affirmative action um has really only benefited white women mm-hmm. and not a lot of other minority groups or women of color and it it didn't occur to me, but but it's it's eye-opening really to to understand how different groups have um, you know, moved forward based on things that have been set up, like women's suffrage. Really, only white women were helped; were mm-hmm. were given the right to vote, right? The, like I said, the affirmative action. There's a lot more white women in the boardroom now than men of color, even, right? And that, it's just it's it's interesting to me how we still have these pretty deep underlining um, issues in our society, even though from from a, a broad brush look, we're equal, but we're not. There's still so many things we need to fight
1: for. Right. And I think that's the the, the, the whole point of my book is to talk, look at systems, right? So yeah. not only do I talk about patriarchy, but I also talk about white saviorism and white supremacy that came with the church and uh, the missions work that I did do. And so mm-hmm. the unlearning that I had to do um, to realize I actually have a lot of white supremacist ideas, yep. which I don't think the church would ever admit to, but that, that, that were present in the mission work that we, you know, we were doing, like, for example, I would be, you know, given that platform to talk to like hundreds and hundreds of students and, and I, about like perseverance or something, whereas, Uh, that wouldn't happen in the United States because I don't have any credentials, you know, at that that time I didn't have any credentials to speak on that. Um, yeah, I was given the mic because I was white and because I, you know, had white skin and and specifically in this context, I'd be talking to, you know, maybe girls who grew up in sub-Saharan Africa who had to fight to get the education that they did, right. Because of, of these gender roles and, um, like they could probably teach me a lot more about perseverance than I could teach them, and so this kind of this idea of 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 white supremacy even coming with it, like we have what's good for you, and we're not going to listen to you, and we're going to tell you how to live your life without trying to understand their culture, or um, even to take the time to listen and learn, which was a big huge lesson that I had to learn that I'd brighter up. Um, I talk about in my book is is kind of unlearning this white saviorism and learning to listen and looking at my complicity and harmful systems instead of thinking I'm the savior to fix the systems that, you know, my people built, right? Like why yep. a lot yeah. of these systems were like b- built by, um, white men and, and white, yeah. you know, Christian wealthy men. And that, I mean, that is the context I come from. Like, um, you know, if we look at my family line, my, my, family or at least on my father's side like white wealthy uh you know christian Mm -hmm. um and and we have to like look at the systems that they built. like sometimes people say well america is broken but i also hear anti-racist um educators like no america is working the way it was designed to work. And so that's why we really do need to confront systems. And so we could go way deeper into that, like, about, like, here in the United States, we had like, redlining. So the idea that um, Black people were not given, uh, you know, they couldn't get mortgages. Like, Banks would not finance them, and so they weren't right. be able to get houses, and houses is the biggest predictor of wealth and whether or not you're going to be able to pass on that wealth. Right. Um, and then you talk about, you know, even our our education system, like, okay, so they can't own houses and houses, like, schools are funded by wealthy taxes you know household taxes um in the area and so then those those ha- those schools in the poor areas would not get the funding that yep. they needed and we could like go on and on and on Absolutely. about how the system um is designed to keep black people or people of color down um, and, and and elevate uh white people so yep. kind of like exploiting them and so there is so much to learn um there and i do talk about uh, of course as much as I've learned, um, and I still am learning and have a lot to learn about how uh, the system has been designed for white men. And and, and unfortunately, white women have, have used that proximity to power uh, for their own benefit. Um, yep. And so, like, again, you mentioned briefly the the women's suffrage movement, I mean, in 19, uh, you know, when we were fighting to, for, to get the right to vote, when white women were, and black women, like, they were also trying to get the right to vote because that mattered to them. Um, You know, they told black women to march at the end of the parade. And even when suffrage was passed, so, um, you know, technically all women got the right to vote, even black women. But they, the white women um, t- turned a blind eye to uh, uh, laws that were in the south that really prevented and hindered and restricted that right for um, not just black women but for black men as well. and mm-hmm. so that's um, you know they, they had these you know tests were like literacy tests, these crazy tests that they had to take to get to vote and there was all of this kind of voter suppression and yeah. it wasn't until 1965 with the Voter Rights Act that, um, we, you know, saw that, okay, this is opening up the door more. Um, but I also don't want people to think that the, the, the issue is over because, uh, there's still so much voter suppression happening. So here in, I live in Georgia, uh, we had an incredible, like monumental election, um, where so much of the black vote showed up, um, particularly in the 2020 election. And then um, in the subsequent, well, during that election, there was also, we were voting for two senators. And then afterwards, it was a runoff because it was too close. And, uh, you know, the black people, the black population showed up in record numbers to vote. And we're seeing this response now where Georgia legislation is pushing against that. And they just passed a law where it is now illegal to give food or water to people waiting in line. And it's shown and proven that here in Georgia that the areas that have the longest lines, um, like hours and hours, are areas that are predominantly people of color. So this is how voter suppression is happening, that those areas have less voting machines, less voter, like less workers, all of this stuff so that they have to wait longer in line to cast their vote. And now they're taking away like what little help they have. And so voter suppression is still very present today um, and it's happening today. So it, the, you know, the Voting Rights Act was so important and especially removing those literacy um, uh, uh, tests. But here in Georgia, there's still quite a bit of suppression happening. And it's
0: so opaque. Like you can't even look at it and say, Oh, that intent was to suppress the black population's vote, but it was, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know that it was, but it doesn't explicitly say it right. And it's so frustrating to fight against. And I, I hope more women take on your message and, and fight back because if, if we don't now, our children will not benefit from it. And the work that we do today is absolutely going to impact the next generation. You know, we might not get to see it, but it does mean something. It does go somewhere. So keep fighting and keep keep doing what you're doing, Megan. I can't wait to read your book. It's, um, it's really important stuff. You know, my podcast is about being bold, being balanced, and being grateful for the blessed lives that we lead and you are the epitome of bold fighting back, um, against something that was taught to you at such a young age. So I really applaud you for that. Thank you. I have two last questions, um, that are much lighter in topic. Well, one of them is, (laughs) um, I, I'm a, you know, it's about efficiency B. So I'm a working mom. It's all about doing a lot of things with a little amount of time. And I'm always very curious about morning routines. Do you have a morning routine and what's the most important part of it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it's like consistent from day to day but I always try to exercise in the morning Mm -hmm. so this morning my husband and I played tennis or we'll take a walk or we'll do a workout together um and because I work from home and my schedule really varies like some days I'll be like all podcasts and some days I'll you know work on social media some days it's like um doing you know email whatever the case is um My actual day-to-day of what I'm doing varies a lot, but I do find that I really enjoy um, getting up early, exercising. I find that I have more energy um, throughout the day. And I also feel like, you know, if my day was a little bit crazy and I didn't feel like I accomplished much, having that in the morning really, I think, not only gives me more stamina, but makes me feel like I did accomplish something. Yeah. Um, and so that is kind of what my mornings look like. Sometimes um we I I also meditate. Um I, I'm not as consistent <laughs> at that as I want to be. Um, but and then I also have these rhythms in place where um one, either once a week or definitely once a month, I reflect. I think that's a really important part for me. I mean, it's not part of my morning routine per se, but I think reflecting. Um, on the past month, processing the last month, and and realizing where I want to go to move forward um, is really helpful for me to just kind of yeah. review and observe and to move forward. That's awesome. I agree with you. I just got back from the gym. I'm still in my, (laughs) I'm still sweating.
0: Um, And then my other question is really around, and you've already answered this, I think in part, but if you reflect back to your childhood, you know, formative years, 10 Mm -hmm. to 13 years old ish, is there a significant um, event in history or in your personal life or something culturally that you specifically remember that has impacted you as an adult and the work that you do?
1: Man, that is a good question. I mean, I think I had a really great teacher when I was in the fifth grade. So I think Mm -hmm. you're like 10 or 11 there, I think, Mm -hmm. Um, who I think really empowered me. Like that was where she just really affirmed that I was smart and capable and could do things. And I think her seeing me made me feel, I guess, special, Um, like I could do things. Um and but it's it's also interesting because I was also in a context where that I mean that was also when I was deep in like my church and purity culture and all this other stuff. Yeah. Um but I, I always do wonder if like her like telling me I could be more and do more um was part of it. Um but I, I don't know about like any historical events unfortunately. Uh, I I grew up in Colorado, and I remember the combine shooting happening, and so that's something that's kind of, like, seared into my memory, as well as um, the 9-11 attacks are both around that Mm -hmm. age, Um, but I don't, I I guess I haven't necessarily reflected on how that that affected my adolescence, Um, but yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Megan,
0: I, I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, I hope everyone will will go over and listen to your Faith in Feminism podcast, and I will be in line to order your book for sure.
1: Oh, that, thank you. Yes, everyone, please go out and order that book. It would mean the world to me. Um, as uh, Melissa has shared, I think yeah. <laughs> getting a book deal is is hard but more than (laughs) harder than getting a book deal is actually writing the book which I'm sorry you're you're soon to find that out it's very vulnerable and uh excavating of yourself and so um it would just mean the world to me if if you yeah went out and got it order link that we can put in the notes yeah I do have a pre-order link um I don't when is this going live uh probably later this week okay yep so yeah, it's, it goes a lot. You can actually join the launch team if you're interested. That is open oh, okay. until the rest of the week. Awesome. Um, but that will, that's, um, um, if you go to my Instagram, there's a link that has the pre-order, everything like that. So Perfect. Um, yeah. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you so much, Megan. I really appreciate talking to you.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: Well, guys, that wraps it up. Thank you so much for listening. Keep spreading that EB love. And remember to find me on Facebook at Efficiency Bee. Until we meet again, be bold, be balanced, and stay blessed. See ya.